Lesson 4. Intelligent Response to the Good News About the Kingdom First of all, Master Texts. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the house of the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will settle disputes between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That quotation was from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And in the days of those kings, represented by Daniel's image, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That's from Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 to 16. And he the Messiah will rule over the house of Jacob forever. That's from Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. The author of a series of explanatory sermons on, quote, essential Christianity, asked in 1894, Have you seriously pondered the fact that Jesus Christ was always preaching the kingdom of God? and that in the model prayer which he gave us, he taught us to pray always that his kingdom might come. Matthew 6, verse 10. In the present day, men are always talking about the church. In view of this modern practice, is it not startling to be reminded that in the model prayer, there is no reference at all to the church, while the reference to the kingdom is prominent and pronounced? So far as the record goes, Christ referred to the church only twice. On the other hand, he speaks of the kingdom not less than 112 times. The same author went on to point out that, and I quote, one of the most mischievous and fatal mistakes ever made in Christian history was the mistake of St. Augustine, who identified the kingdom of God with the church. But the church is no more the kingdom of God than the British army is the British Empire. It is high time for all Christians to ponder the long-lost teaching of Christ with respect to the kingdom of God. That's from Hugh Price Hughes' book, Essential Christianity. It has been our contention that a loss of clarity regarding the kingdom of God must directly affect our comprehension of Jesus' gospel message, the Christian gospel. The kingdom of God is, as we've seen, the principal subject of all that Jesus taught, Luke 4, 43, and so on. 
There can therefore be no question of our responding to his call for repentance and belief in the gospel message about the kingdom if we do not know what he meant by the kingdom of God. Any appeal for us to accept, quote, the gospel, when no reference to the kingdom of God appears, must be defective, since it omits an essential part of the saving message offered by Jesus and the apostles for belief. As in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, Luke 4, verse 43, Matthew 4, verse 17, and Acts 8, and verse 12, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. If perhaps we have vaguely imagined the kingdom to be a synonym for the church, the community of the faithful, we will have to examine the biblical evidence to see if the kingdom can possibly be confined to a reign of God in the present time, either in our hearts or in the body of believers as a whole. If we have been talking about heaven as the goal of the Christian, we will have to begin to speak instead, as Jesus always did, of the kingdom of God. The author we cited above went on to tell us about the roots of Jesus' conception of the kingdom. I quote, I think there can be no doubt where Jesus Christ found and nourished his doctrine of the kingdom. He found it in the book of Daniel, and especially in Daniel chapter 7. There are many evidences that the book of Daniel was one of the favorite books of Jesus Christ, one of the books which he diligently and deeply studied during the years of peaceful obscurity in Nazareth before his stormy public ministry began. He makes several references to Daniel. When the book of Daniel is once understood, it throws quite a flood of light upon the numerous parables in which our Lord described the kingdom. He declared again and again that the kingdom was the first object of his life to establish, and he asserted it ought to be the first object of our lives to promote. He summed up all our duties in the ever-memorable command to, quote, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. A quotation again was from Hugh Price Hughes in his book, Essential Christianity. Taking our cue from the book of Daniel, we may easily establish the fact that the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, is a real external empire. Not only this, it is to be an empire which will seize power suddenly and dramatically from the world's governments which precede it and it will be administered by, quote, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and the saints, Daniel 7, verse 27. On no account from the evidence of Daniel could it be an invisible reign established only in the hearts of believers. Its political dimension, as well as its location on earth, is unmistakably clear. It is equally obvious that the kingdom of God described by Daniel has not yet appeared. I quote, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom, in the New Testament, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, which will never be destroyed, 
and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That's Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the next verse, the impact of the kingdom is likened to a stone crushing the, quote, iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold of former world empires. The certainty of this shattering event is based on what, quote, the great God has made known to the king and what, and I quote again, will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. That's Daniel 2, verse 45. I quote again, To him, that's to say the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-title, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey them. That's Daniel 7, verses 14 and 27 as translated by the Revised Standard Version. The kingdom of God is evidently an empire, exercising sway over all nations. It will come to power on the earth, as to say, from the biblical terms, under the whole heaven, and its establishment will be by a catastrophe, an international upheaval resulting in a complete political reorganization. The administration of the kingdom will be in the hands of, quote, the Son of Man and the saints. A recurring theme of the New Testament, but very infrequently preached, is that Jesus and his followers will be the executives of the new world government, the kingdom of God. Matthew 19, verse 28, Luke 22, verses 28 to 30, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, Revelation 2, verse 26, 3, verse 21, and Revelation 5, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verse 4. To be a saint in the New Testament is to be one appointed to rule with the Messiah in the coming kingdom. Jesus' announcement of a coming crisis. In the light of this background information, Jesus' public proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom of God must be understood as a warning about a great future crisis in history. This stupendous event, foreseen not only by Daniel, but by the other Hebrew prophets, demanded an immediate repentance and reformation of lifestyle. The point of the call for repentance Quote, for the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, was simply that a place in the kingdom would be granted only to those found living in faithful obedience to God. The threatening element in the proclamation of the gospel 
can be seen from John the Baptist's appeal for a U-turn in conduct, private and national, because the kingdom of God was, quote, at hand, Matthew 3, verse 2. Referring to Jesus, John says, quote, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3, verse 12. Matthew describes this message in exactly the same words as he summarizes the teaching of Jesus. Both agents of God's word, John and Jesus, called for repentance, quote, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 3, verse 2, and Matthew 4, verse 17. The message contained both a threat and a promise. Sudden death as the appalling consequence of persistent unrepentance and the glory of the kingdom for those who had heeded the message and prepared themselves accordingly. This simple theme governs the entire New Testament. There are two possible destinies for human beings, the barn or the bonfire. Either one enters the kingdom or one is destroyed. Hence the critical warning element in the Christian gospel. Underlying the call for repentance was the well-known concept of the day of the Lord predicted by the Old Testament prophets. This day of terrible divine wrath is equated in the New Testament with the second coming of Jesus to establish the promised kingdom. Thus, in the well-known parable of the tares, the good seed are, and I quote, the sons or disciples of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Matthew 13, verses 38 to 43. It is crucial to note that the coming of the kingdom of God, in which the righteous are to, quote, shine forth as the sun, is placed at the end of the age. At the same time as the appearance of the kingdom, the wicked will be, quote, cast into the furnace of fire. The kingdom of their father, that's to say the kingdom of God, in which the righteous appear in glory, is evidently a new order introduced by a judgment at which the wicked perish. The kingdom in these texts is certainly not a kingdom of the present time, much less a, quote, rule of God in the heart. It has yet to appear at the end of the age. All of this fits admirably with the kingdom described by Daniel chapter 2 
and chapter 7. And it is evident that Jesus derived his teaching from that book. These simple facts are confirmed by the context in Daniel from which Jesus' reference to the shining forth of the righteous is taken. The words are part of Daniel's prediction of the resurrection of the dead. See Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. It is when, quote, many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the ground awake to everlasting life. It is then that the righteous will, quote, shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven in the kingdom of God. Daniel 12, verse 3. We note that the righteous, according to Jesus, Matthew 13, 43, are, quote, those who cause many to gain understanding and make many righteous. That's Daniel 12, verse 3. It is, quote, by his knowledge that the servant makes many righteous. Isaiah 53, verse 11. These are most important texts describing the Christian life. Knowledge of God's kingdom plan is an essential basis for the Christian life. The kingdom expected by Jesus' contemporaries. The kingdom of God eagerly anticipated by Jesus' fellow countrymen was undoubtedly a new world order affecting not just a handful of disciples, but the entire earth. The, quote, day of the Lord, which was to introduce it, would be a cataclysm like the flood because of its destructive power. Yet beyond the awful judgment, a renewed, regenerated earth was to emerge, and sane, peaceful government would ensure a golden age for all permitted to survive into the new kingdom. Unlike many modern audiences, those who heard Jesus proclaim the kingdom would have been fully aware of what the prophets had said about the coming great turning point in history. I quote, The mortal will be humbled and brought low. Get among the rocks, hide in the dust, at the sight of the terror of Yahweh, at the brilliance of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth quake. Human pride will lower its eyes, the arrogance of men will be humbled, Yahweh alone will be exalted on that day. Yes, that day will be the day of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies of heaven. Against all pride and arrogance, against all that is great, to bring it down. Human pride will be humbled. The arrogance of men will be brought low. Yahweh alone will be exalted on that day and all idols thrown down. Go into the hollows and the rocks, into the caverns of the earth at the sight of the terror of Yahweh, at the brilliance of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth quake. That day man will fling to the moles and the bats the idols of silver and the idols of gold that he made for worship. That quotation is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 20, as translated by the Jerusalem Bible. The hope of a new era of peace on earth following the fearful day of the Lord may be grasped 
by simply reading what the prophets say. The expectation about the kingdom, current when Jesus launched his campaign for repentance and belief in the good news, has been clearly documented by historian and theologian alike. The facts they present provide an indispensable guide to the meaning of Jesus' favorite phrase, the kingdom of God. Unless that term is firmly rooted in its first century Hebrew environment, it becomes quite impossible to know what Jesus requires of us with his call for, quote, repentance and belief in the gospel about the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and compare with that Acts chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 19, verse 8, chapter 20, verse 25, and chapter 28, verses 23 and 31. Detached from its context, the kingdom of God has been redefined with almost total disregard for its biblical meaning in various different ways acceptable to our own religious ideas and ideals. It is quite wrong, however, to attribute these to Jesus or call them his gospel. The loss of a proper historical sense for defining the Christian gospel of the kingdom lies at the heart of all our theological confusion and division. One distinguished historian of Christianity describes the historical setting necessary for grasping the impact made by Jesus and John the Baptist's announcement of the kingdom. I quote, The expectation of a great deliverance and of a golden age of righteousness and peace and prosperity kept alive by the lessons from Scripture which were read and expounded in the synagogues gave birth from time to time to prophets who announced that the great moment was come, as from G.F. Moore's History of Religions. With their proclamation, both Jesus and John were calling upon men and women to prepare for the coming divine intervention, the day of the Lord, which in the New Testament is the equivalent of the expected arrival of the kingdom. The teaching of Jesus and the apostles is dominated throughout by the expectation of the coming judgment and the consequent inauguration of the new world order. Every word of their exhortations is directed towards preparing us for the great event. The whole New Testament is a manual of instruction for those preparing to rule with Jesus in the coming kingdom. Apostolic preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God, Christian gospel, presupposes an understanding of this Hebrew view of history. Our problem is that audiences are now constantly asked to accept, quote, the gospel in ignorance of the Hebrew frame of reference within which Jesus taught. This results in a misunderstanding which can only be corrected when potential converts are taught the basic so-called vocabulary of the New Testament. It is no solution to reduce the gospel to a message only about the death and resurrection of Jesus. These events most certainly guarantee the future establishment of the kingdom, but the kingdom remains the kingdom foreseen by the prophets 
We are still to pray for its coming, Matthew 6, verse 10, and it is the heart of the gospel of salvation, Acts 8, verse 12, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, Matthew 13, 19, and Luke 8, verse 12. The long-standing aversion to the Jewishness of Jesus. Commentators often display their dislike of Jesus, the Christ, when they are confronted with the Savior's messianic outlook. We can most easily illustrate this antipathy to the messianic kingdom and thus to the gospel of the kingdom by citing a school of thought which denies that the book of Revelation derives its inspiration from Jesus Christ. To scholars of this persuasion, the Revelation was written by one who lives on the learned results of past ages. He has studied books and digested books. He has drawn his great eschatological, that's to say relating to the future, system from them. This very human wisdom he produces as if it were God's word, and he tries to conceal from himself his insight into the real origin of the book by making as loud assertions of its divine origin as possible. Thereby his work becomes a memorial of the decay of prophecy. The final act of the drama is described by him in two stages. First of all, after the battle of the Messiah, there is the thousand years reign of Christ and the martyrs. This is indeed the official Jewish eschatology. We have here the most entire reversion conceivable to the old familiar national Jewish language. The Christian people takes the place of the Jewish and takes over its contempt for the Gentiles. For such Christians, the whole transformation which Jesus effected of the conception of the kingdom of God has been in vain. That's from Paul Werner's book, The Beginnings of Christianity, 1903. So much for the Jesus of the book of Revelation. According to our quotation, Jesus is just an ignorant Jew. Unfortunately, those who belong to this school of thought begin by misunderstanding Jesus and his message of the kingdom. They then accuse Jesus in the book of Revelation of contradicting their misconception. It appears that unbelief carries with it an inevitable penalty. I quote, if you will not believe, neither will you understand. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9 in the Septuagint. It is possible to be given over into the power of our own sin and deception. We cite further evidence of the fact that Jesus' message in the book of Revelation and thus his whole messianic outlook has been rejected by many. One book requires notice by reason of its peculiar character and of its influence on Christian eschatology, teaching about the future, namely the Revelation of John. Most of the visions contain so little that is specifically Christian, and I add, although given by Jesus Christ, that it has been seriously questioned whether they were not appropriated entire from Jewish sources with only a superficial adaptation 
to Christian use. Whatever degree of literary originality may be allowed to the author, the matter is Jewish throughout. The resurrection of the saints to enjoy the thousand-year reign of the Messiah, the war of Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium, and their destruction, the general resurrection and the last judgment, the new Jerusalem descending from heaven in all its glitter of gold, even to the river of life and the trees bearing monthly crops of new fruit and medicinal leaves, are the trite ideas and imagery of Jewish eschatology, with its corporeal resurrection and its millennial reign. These ideas were brought over into the church and found acceptance among ignorant Christians. In the second century, millenarian eschatology, as to say belief that the saints will rule with Christ for a thousand years, was orthodoxy in Asia Minor, and the wide regions which took their theology from that source. It is the faith of Irenaeus. It has survived through all the vicissitudes of theology and over and over again has broken out in epidemics of enthusiasm. That quotation is from G. F. Moore, History of Religions. We may applaud this excellent summary of what the book of Revelation expects in the future while marveling at the cavalier fashion in which the great truths of the New Testament are dismissed as non-Christian and Jesus' vision is dismissed as trite. It is a little-known fact that the, quote, founding fathers of large sections of Protestant Christianity also found the message of Jesus recorded in the Revelation unacceptable. I quote, Luther, at first, in his preface in translation of the New Testament, 1522, expressed a strong aversion to the book of Revelation declaring that to him it had every mark of being neither prophetic nor apostolic. He cannot see that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he does not like the commands and threats which the writer makes about his book in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, and the promise of blessedness to those who keep what is written in it. Revelation 1, verse 3, and chapter 22, verse 7, when no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it, and there are many nobler books to be kept. Moreover, many fathers rejected the book, says Luther. And finally, quoting from Luther, everyone thinks of it whatever his spirit imparts. My spirit cannot adapt itself to this book, and a sufficient reason why I do not esteem it highly is that Christ is neither taught nor recognized in it, which is what an apostle ought before all things to do. Later, in 1534, Luther finds a possibility of Christian usefulness in the book of Revelation, but he still thought it a hidden, dumb prophecy unless interpreted and upon the interpretation no certainty had been reached after many efforts. He remained doubtful about its apostolicity 
and in 1545 he printed the book of Revelation with Hebrews, James, and Jude as an appendix to his New Testament, not numbered in the index. And Zwingli, a leading reformer, regarded Revelation as, quote, not a biblical book. And even Calvin, with his high view of inspiration, does not comment on 2nd and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. That's from the article on Revelation in Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible, Volume 4. Readers should reflect on the remarkable fact that churches have continued to give their allegiance to Calvin and Luther, despite the former's hesitancy about the apocalypse and the latter's obvious refusal to heed the warnings of Jesus given in the Revelation. I quote, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book of Revelation, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues written in the book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. In Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, Blessed is he who keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is he who reads and they who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is at hand. End of quotation from Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. This hardly sounds as if the book could be safely relegated to an appendix. The book of Revelation, as is well recognized, draws together the strands of Old Testament prophecy and describes the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth at the second coming of Jesus. It is the fitting climax to the expectations of both the Old Testament and New Testament depicting the triumph of the kingdom of God over a hostile world. The kingdom of God announced by Jesus will finally come to power on earth when the seventh angel sounds. The kingdoms of this world, note that none of the present nations are the kingdom of God now, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who is and was and is to come, because you have assumed power and have begun to reign. Compare with that Psalm 97 verse 1 and Psalm 99 verse 1. The Lord has begun to reign. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18. This is the kingdom of God announced in the gospel message, and the kingdom for which Christians are to pray, thy kingdom come. It is not widely recognized that in so praying, 
Christians anticipate the overthrow of human governments in order that peace and harmony may prevail across the globe. One fact is unmistakably clear in the New Testament. The kingdom of God will come only as a result of a divine intervention bringing to an end the, quote, present evil age. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. An anti-messianic tendency. The rejection of the book of Revelation points to a deeply rooted anti-messianic tendency in much traditional theology. When commentators assess the Revelation as unchristian, as Luther did in his early days, attempt to remove it from the canon of Scripture or, quote, reinterpret it to avoid its, quote, Jewish millennial prophecy, they display their dislike of the Jesus whose all-consuming concern was to bring peace to the earth and justice for all through his kingdom. The real Jesus never abandoned the prophet's hope for messianic government on earth. He knew, however, that the triumph of the kingdom must await his second coming in glory. Thus, in the New Testament, the day of the Lord is expected to arrive when Jesus returns, quote, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. Then the kingdom will come. Then the hopes of all the ages will reach fulfillment. Then only can the agonized cry, How long, O Lord, find its answer? It is to this messianic future that the New Testament strains in verse after verse. Someone has calculated that the second coming is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. The number is much higher when synonyms for the return of Jesus are taken into account. Once, however, the tension line between the believer and the bright future in the kingdom is slackened, the vitality of the faith is lost, and the point of discipleship is destroyed. At present, churchgoers often lack that essential drive to reach the promised kingdom. They have not been told what that kingdom is. So many of their mentors seem to have no coherent view of the Christian future. There's a blank throughout the last chapter of their book, needing to be filled with all the riches of the biblical hope for the coming reign of Christ on earth. A future with no substance. The prospect of the coming kingdom of Christ and the faithful on earth is part and parcel of the gospel message inextricably linked with the sacrificial death of Jesus and his resurrection. Acts 8 verse 12, Acts 28 verses 23 to 31. Tragically, many who claim to be Christians disparage the hope of the coming kingdom by treating it as disposable, a relic of primitive mentality which we, with our vastly superior scientific outlook, could not think of embracing. In so doing, they place the Christian doctrine of the kingdom under a fog. The Christian future is reduced to a meaningless non-event rather than a stupendous climax in history 
for which all are commanded to prepare. The fact that not everyone will survive until the coming of Jesus in power is no excuse for neglecting the teaching about the Messiah's return. The date of that return is known to no one. Those believers who have died before the end of the age will take part in the glory of the kingdom through resurrection. See 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 and 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23 and Revelation chapter 11 verses 15 to 18. The following inquiry was addressed to a representative of the clergy in a Presbyterian magazine. The response illustrates the unwillingness of many to face the stark reality of Jesus' warnings about the future. The question was asked, why are there so few sermons in our churches on the second coming? Is this part of our belief or not? Then came the answer, not all Christians think alike on matters of theology, but it would be hard for someone to feel at home in our tradition who did not understand God as the one who has come, who is present, Christ has risen, and who is yet to come in whatever form the future winds up taking. To literalize the second coming is to ruin both its beauty and its significance. To ignore it is to avoid what may be the most important part of the gospel we know about, since the past and the present, relatively speaking, are brief, while tomorrow borders on the forever. An appropriate reaction to this answer appeared in a later issue of the same magazine. I quote, I compliment the Reverend so-and-so for his elusive non-answer to what I'm sure was a serious question concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. If I understand his answer, he said, in effect, we don't all agree, but if you want to be comfortable in our fellowship, you will need to agree that Jesus is coming again, but not really. For if you actually believe in the second coming, you will ruin both its beauty and its significance. Yet you can't ignore it because it is in the future. Why not a simple answer? Why not admit that those who cannot receive the Bible literally must spiritualize the second coming because it's too large a segment of the New Testament to be ignored? The approach to the New Testament doctrine about the future is typical of much of what has gone under the name of Christian teaching over many centuries. It has been hard for many to detect the trick being played with words when an outright rejection of the biblical doctrine of the kingdom is veiled by impressive, quote, theological language. What much traditional theology has done to the second coming should not be graced with the term spiritualize. It has, in fact, evaporated the return of Christ. The whole vision of the prophets and the whole gospel of the kingdom is in jeopardy if its dominant future element is removed. Even the gospel proposed by many evangelicals suffers from the same absence of any future reference. Here is how they define evangelism. To evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins 
and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and that as reigning Lord he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. That statement was from the Lausanne Covenant International Congress on World Evangelization in Lausanne, Switzerland in 1974. This appears to us to lack essential elements of the gospel as Jesus taught it. Jesus preached the gospel about the kingdom and only later added information about his death and resurrection. Jesus spoke of responding to the gospel message of the kingdom as the essential first step for salvation and immortality. He taught that the seed of immortality was found in the gospel of the kingdom of God. See Matthew chapter 13 verse 19, Luke 8 verse 12, and 1 Peter 1 verses 21 to 25. The future kingdom of the gospel. The urgent demand by Jesus to quote, repent and believe the good news of the kingdom, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Why doesn't gospel preaching begin with this verse? That demand of Jesus implies an understanding of the term kingdom of God. While Jesus' leading phrase remains unclear, the gospel itself is obscured. Perhaps it is this uncertainty over the meaning of Jesus' proclamation about the kingdom that has caused evangelicals to drop all reference to the kingdom of God in their definition of the gospel and to rely on what they think is a full account of the saving message that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is customary for evangelicals to appeal to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1-5. I quote, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are being saved, if you hold fast the message which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, literally among the first things, New American Standard Version margin, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, and then to the twelve. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. An important key to understanding Paul's fine statement about his own gospel message is found in the little phrase in Greek, en protis, amongst things of primary importance, in verse 3. The point is that it was the resurrection of Jesus which some of the Corinthians were beginning to doubt. Quote, How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. In response to this particular crisis of belief, Paul reminds his audience that the death and resurrection of Jesus are absolutely fundamental in their significance in the Christian gospel. Without the death of Jesus, 
to gain forgiveness for all of our sins, and without his return from death to life through resurrection, there can be no hope of salvation in the coming kingdom. It is a dangerous mistake, however, to argue from this text that the facts about Jesus' death and resurrection form the whole message of the gospel. Paul is careful to say that the essential facts were preached, quote, amongst things of primary importance, verse 3. This, however, was not the entire gospel. There were other things also of equal importance in the gospel, namely the announcement about the kingdom of God, Acts 8, 12, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 25, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. We recall that Jesus had proclaimed the kingdom long before he spoke of his death and resurrection. Luke 4, verse 43, compare Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. And this fact proves that the kingdom of God is not a synonym for the death and resurrection of Christ. Furthermore, it is evident that Paul was not here directly addressing the subject of the kingdom of God as a future event coinciding with the return of Jesus. The Corinthians had accepted that belief as part of the gospel of salvation. Thus, Paul is able to elaborate on the doctrine of the kingdom only a few verses later, having just mentioned the future coming of Jesus in verse 23, he speaks of the kingdom over which Jesus will preside at his coming, verses 25 to 27. That kingdom, it should be carefully noted, is the kingdom into which, quote, flesh and blood cannot enter, for, quote, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. In order to enter the kingdom of God, Christians must be summoned from death at the last trumpet and be changed in the twinkling of an eye into immortal persons, verses 51 and 52. These verses confirm, once again, the fact that the kingdom of God comes into power at the second coming. The kingdom has a principal place in the New Testament gospel message in addition, of course, to the equally essential preaching of the death and resurrection of the Savior, it is a serious mishandling of the Bible to place 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5 in conflict with the massive evidence for the central importance of the kingdom of God in the pre- and post-resurrection proclamation, Luke 4, 43, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, Matthew 4, 17, Acts 8, verse 12, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 25, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, and so on. Once again, we must emphasize the importance of Acts 8, verse 12, echoed in Acts 28, verse 23 and 31, as Luke's comprehensive summary statement about the gospel message. I quote, When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. Compare with this Matthew 13, verse 19, 
and Luke 8 verse 12. Contemporary statements about the gospel. A definition of the gospel was offered by the Lausanne Conference on Evangelism in 1974, which we cited above. It speaks of the forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus, of his resurrection, and of his present reign in heaven. It says nothing, however, about the kingdom of God as the goal of the Christian believer. The future dimension of salvation so prominent in the New Testament is absent. This absence of the kingdom appears to cut the gospel message in half, stripping it of its strong emphasis on God's plan to send his son back to the earth to reign with his followers in the messianic government promised by the prophets. The New Testament gospel does not deal only with the past and the present, but with the past, present, and future. One may, however, search contemporary statements of the gospel message, that's to say tracts and books and appeals on radio and television, one can search these in vain for any reference to the future activity of Jesus Christ. Yet Jesus' focus in the gospel directs us towards the ultimate goal, the gaining of a place not, quote, in heaven, but in the kingdom of God on earth. Daniel 7, verse 27. It would be difficult to see how the Christian objective could have been more plainly defined than in the following verses. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. The Gospel Hope. The loss of the kingdom of God from the Christian gospel stems from the loss of the biblical view about the future, which forms so vital a part of original Christianity. For centuries, churchgoers have been persuaded that the ultimate goal of their commitment to Christ is, quote, to go to heaven when they die. This notion is fundamentally unbiblical. It undermines the need for the coming of the kingdom of God on earth at the return of Jesus. In the New Testament, hope, which is the second of the trio of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, is directed towards the glorious messianic future. Quote, hope may be defined as desire of future good accompanied by faith in its realization. Faith has regard equally to the past, the present, and future, while no doubt in Scripture referring mainly to the future. Hope is directed only to the future. That's a quotation from the article on hope in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible. A clear hope was instilled into the mind of the believer when he heard the gospel message about the kingdom. Quotation. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, just as you learned it from Epaphras. That's Colossians 1, verses 4 to 7.
Another quotation. In Christ also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is given us as a down payment of our inheritance. That's Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. A few verses later, Paul prays that, and I quote, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. It is critically important for believers to know that they are being invited to rule with Messiah on earth in the coming new order. In these verses, it becomes clear that the future hope was part of Paul's gospel. Apostolic evangelism went beyond the promise of the forgiveness of sins and faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. It put before the convert the promise of inheriting the kingdom of God at the return of Christ. A gospel message, therefore, which is not pledged to the future fact of God's coming intervention to overthrow all human government and grant the kingdom to the church, is not the gospel of the New Testament. The hope which the Colossians learned when they heard the gospel is of such significance that Paul speaks of their love and faith, which, quote, spring from the hope, as the NIV reads. It is because of the hope, Colossians 1, verse 5, in the New American Standard Version, the hope prepared for them in heaven that the Colossians are to develop faith and love in the Spirit. We should note that their hope of inheriting the kingdom of God is, quote, laid up in heaven. That is typical of the Jewish belief that all the good things of the future are already prepared in heaven for the faithful, waiting to be revealed on earth at the coming of the Messiah. See, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It remains therefore a fact that Christian hope is directed not towards, quote, going to heaven at death, but, quote, inheriting the earth, Matthew 5, verse 5, and ruling in it, Revelation 5, verse 10, when Christ returns. The kingdom is prepared in heaven, but it will appear on the earth when Jesus returns. We're not going to leave the earth for heaven, the exact opposite. Jesus is going to leave heaven and come back to the earth. In the light of these facts, we suggest that the Lausanne Convention's definition of evangelism needs modification as follows. To evangelize is to spread the good news that God has planned as the goal of history to establish his kingdom on the earth when Jesus returns. That Jesus now offers forgiveness through faith in the kingdom gospel and his atoning death and resurrection. For all those who believe the gospel message and obey him, Acts 5.32, he grants the promise of his spirit now as a down payment to empower them in the present life in preparation 
for positions of rulership with Christ in the kingdom to be inaugurated at his return. In this way, the apostolic orientation towards the future kingdom is incorporated into the gospel, reflecting the New Testament pattern. The urgent need to recover the gospel framework. The message of Jesus is set within a Jewish Old Testament framework which Jesus did not come to overthrow. See Matthew 5 verse 17. He came to bring the ultimate meaning to the law, not just to repeat it in the letter. Unlike many modern Bible readers, Jesus believed the message of the prophets and, with them, longed for the fulfillment of their united vision of a coming kingdom of peace. The appeal to us, likewise, to believe the prophets is built into Jesus' gospel message. We are urged to repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. This is where New Testament gospel preaching begins. It is a call for belief in God's plan, not only to give his son as the sacrificial lamb to die for the sins of the world, but also to send him back to reign in his kingdom. Acts 3, verse 21, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Christianity, in New Testament terms, is a challenge to prepare now for participation in the kingdom which will be introduced by a supernatural upheaval when Jesus returns. Let the scientifically minded read the New Testament with this simple scheme in mind, testing the evidence, and the scriptures will become clear. But once the kingdom of God is, quote, reinterpreted, a thoroughly deceptive way of rejecting it, while pretending not to, when it's reinterpreted to mean only a religious ideal now, with a promise of heaven and death, the clarity of the New Testament is lost. One simply cannot remove the Jewish apocalyptic framework in which the Christian gospel is set without collapsing the whole message. The absence of the word kingdom from modern presentations of the so-called gospel witnesses to the loss of essential saving information. As a learned scholar of the Church of England remarked, and I quote, when the Greek and Roman mind in turn, instead of the Hebrew mind, came to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster in belief and practice from which we have never recovered, either in doctrine or in practice. That was from Canon H. Googe's The Calling of the Jews in Essays on Judaism and Christianity. Recovery will begin when Jesus and Paul's gospel message of the kingdom is reinstated. That the central theme of the teaching of Jesus is the announcement of the kingdom of God is beyond dispute. The good tidings, the gospel, is precisely that the kingdom of God is at hand. There is no doubt on this point. The gospel is to the kingdom what an invitation is to a feast. 
That's a quotation from Charles Guignabert, professor of the history of Christianity, in his book, Jesus.